grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1040. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, in middle school, a friend of mine took me to a basketball game. His sister was playing at the high school, but we got, we got bored. So we, uh, we exited the gym, circled the building, noticed some windows up high. They were cracked open about where the girls' locker room should be. There's also a large tree beside them. And my friend gets an idea. Let's gather some rocks, climb toss them through the window, and then run like crazy. So I agree. It's nighttime. We're hidden. We gather rocks, climb the tree... We rear back, and we freeze. A blinding spotlight is upon us, followed by a voice, get down. It was the police. <clears throat> they were following us for a while. We didn't know that. We were back with his parents shortly. But I'll never forget feeling so exposed. The, that spotlight was all-consuming. There was, there was no escape. My deeds spoke for themselves. I was guilty. Perhaps you have had an experience like that, where your wrongs have left you exposed. That is nothing compared to what we read about today. John sees a great white throne... And God sits to judge the dead. It's an all-consuming scene. There's no escape. People's deeds will speak for themselves. Let's read God's Word, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from whose presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is God's word. Revelation closes with a tale of two cities. In chapters 17 and 18, 
Babylon, the wicked city of man, falls. And this makes way for the new Jerusalem to rise in chapter 21, verse 9. But how does the world get there? How does the story move from the the awful dominance of Babylon to the glorious peace of New Jerusalem? Well, John has been answering that question with another series of seven visions. Uh, They included Jesus' return, which we read about starting in verse 11 of chapter 19. And then in chapter 19, verse 17, Jesus defeats the beast, the false prophet, and his followers. In chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus binds Satan. chapter 20, verse 4, Jesus raises his people to reign a thousand years. In chapter 20, verse 7, Jesus vanquishes Satan and his dreadful enemies. And today we look at a sixth vision. And in doing so, we encounter an awesome court scene. It's like the one you you find in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where you see this this great majestic picture of the ancient of days and he takes his seat on the throne and it says the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Courts usually have a judge, the person accused, evidence to determine their guilt and a verdict. But notice what's missing in this scene Lawyers. No one has a defense. All that matters is what the judge sees, what the judge presents, and what the judge decides. Speaking of the judge, let's consider him first in John's vision. The judge. Verse 11 begins with a great white throne. Now in Revelation, white can symbolize purity, so perhaps we're looking here at God's throne being pure. It could also describe the Lord's radiant glory. But white is also the color of victory, like when Jesus appears on the white horse in chapter 19, verse 11. I think that's crucial to keep in mind here because in Revelation, Satan has a throne, chapter 2, verse 13. The beast has a throne, chapter 13, verse 2. And then he represents a whole line of kings who each have their own thrones. But since chapter 17, God has dethroned and destroyed all rebel powers. And so at the end of the story, God's throne stands victorious. He is the only sovereign. For God to then sit on his throne is for God to exercise power and judgment. We see this pattern throughout the the prophets. Uh, For example, in in Isaiah 6, verse 1, the prophet sees the Lord sitting on the throne to judge Israel. And Ezekiel chapter 1, right? Ezekiel sees the Lord sitting on his throne chariot of sorts right before he judges the idolaters. And then in Daniel 7, the prophet sees the Lord sitting on his throne to judge the rebel kingdoms. In Joel, the Lord gathers the nations before himself and then he sits 
in order to make a judgment on them. Well, John is seeing uh, something similar here. God sits to judge the dead. But notice another description. Uh, The ESV here has a new sentence in verse 11. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Now, read a certain way, it sounds like, you know, the universe is dissolving in this very moment. But that's not what John seems to be saying. Uh, It's better read as a descriptive clause about God himself. Uh, I saw him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. It, It recalls visions from earlier in Revelation, like the one we saw in chapter 6, verse 14, which is describing the second coming. The stars fall, the sky vanishes like a scroll, every mountain and island are removed from their place at the coming of God and the Lamb. And he's saying here that the one seated on the throne, he's the same one I saw earlier in my visions when earth and sky fled away at his coming. So this scene is less about the upheaval of the cosmos in this very moment and more about the majesty of the one who caused it earlier in the narrative. The point is the same, though. When God comes, he is the one before whom there is no hiding place. When he comes, all are exposed and there is no escape before his presence. Some have also pondered, you know, whether John sees God or Jesus here. And I don't think we have to choose. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus said that he conquered and he sat down on his father's throne. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 7, you get the scene in chapter 4 of God sitting on the throne and then the lamb, right, receiving authority to judge in chapter 5. And then later, if you glance over at chapter 22, verse 1, John calls it the throne of God and of the Lamb, a singular throne belonging to God and the Lamb. And so God exercises judgment in and through his Son, Jesus. He is the judge. Next, John sees the accused. He sees the accused, verse 12, I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. Now, some will look at this uh, here, and, and, and they will see the dead in verse 12 representing everyone, the righteous and the wicked alike. Others have suggested that the dead in verse 12 must represent the righteous, while the dead of verse 13 represent the wicked. And I can understand the difficulty uh, John uses the small and, this this phrase, the small and the great elsewhere, and sometimes it refers to the righteous, sometimes it refers to the wicked. Uh, The same with the dead. Sometimes it refers to the righteous dead, right? When he says, like, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Uh, Or other times it refers to the wicked. And then there are passages outside Revelation that that we know about that sometimes influence the way we're reading things here, like Matthew 25, 31, for example, when Jesus sits on his throne and he separates the sheep from the goats. Or maybe 2 Corinthians 5, 10, which says to Christians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
At the same time, nothing in verse 12 itself broadens the dead to include the righteous. In fact, the immediate context actually suggests the opposite, that we should limit the dead to the wicked dead. If you look back up in chapter 20, verse 4, God renders judgment for the saints, uh, the martyrs, and, and all who refuse to worship the beast. God vindicates them and raises them to life to reign with Christ. And then chapter 20, verse 5 says, the rest of the dead, the rest of the dead, that's the beast worshipers, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And he then describes the saints coming to life as the first resurrection, implying there's a second that's reserved for the wicked. Also, when the books are opened in Daniel 10, I mean, sorry, Daniel 7, 10, uh, which is where John is drawing, the scene focuses on punishing the evil kingdoms, the beastly kingdoms, and punishment is the focus here as well. And so I take the dead of verse 12 to represent the wicked, the rest of the dead who did not come to life and reign with Jesus. Now, to be clear, Christians will still appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and they will have to give an account for their deeds. That's, that's true. The, the question is whether John makes that his focus here. And I think his focus is the wicked only. He's, he's, he's only describing that side to the judgment in these verses. Now, taken that way, verse 13 then explains where the wicked came from and how they got there. It says, the, the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. In chapter 13, verse 1, we, uh, we could recall that the sea symbolizes right this, this realm, this dark realm of evil, right? Satan uh, the dragon is on the seashore, and, he, and, he, and he's looking out over the, the, the sea, and up rises the beast, right? The, the, this great beast from the sea. Uh, again and again in Scripture, though, we also see that God is the one who proves his power over the sea, right? He, whether that's commanding the waves in the sea, and they obey him, or, or splitting the sea, or or, or tossing his enemies into the sea. God is the one who controls the seas. And so what we're seeing here is no enemy will stay lurking in the deep. Right? God forces the sea to give up the dead. And the same with, with death and Hades. Uh, Hosea 13, uh, 14 uh, once personified death and Hades this way. Right? You, you get this picture, Israel's in in idolatry and sin, and, and the prophet is, is beckoning for, for death and, and, and Sheol, or Hades, to, to come and kill the people. Right? So he says, O oh death, where are your plagues? O oh Sheol, or Hades, where is your sting? Like, come and get them for their sins. Right? So they, there's this, this picture of this, this gruesome pair right, that, that devoured sinners and then held those sinners captive in the grave. And they appear this way in chapter 6, verse 8 of Revelation also. A rider on a pale horse, he goes out to, to bring sword and, and famine and, and pestilence and death in Hades, it says, follows him. Again, devouring sinners and, and holding them captive. 
Uh, Luke, 20, Luke chapter 16, verse 23, uh, Jesus' parable, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, right, we, describes Hades as kind of a holding place for the wicked that even comes with its own tortures. Uh, so unlike Lazarus, right, Lazarus is pictured in Abra- safe in Abraham's bosom, the rich man in Jesus' parable, uh, he suffers torment. He says, I am in anguish in this flame. So people saw Hades as a powerful force, right? It, it, it held sway over sinners. But we must also recall chapter 1, verse 18 of Revelation. Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. Death and Hades couldn't hold Jesus in the grave because Jesus wasn't a sinner. God raised up Jesus and he gave Jesus authority over the grave. He has the key. If Jesus says, give him up, Death and Hades obey him. Right? So that's what's going on here. Jesus has commanded death and Hades to give up the dead. So in sum, the, the sea and death and Hades represent an underworld that, that teems with the wicked. For them, the sting of death has not been removed. They remain guilty and they await their final sentence. But here, God raises all the wicked from all time for judgment, and John sees them standing before the throne. They don't stand very long, though. And how could they when John's vision also considers the evidence? The evidence. In verse 12, it says that the books were opened, you know, and there's a lot of speculation of what's in the books. Um, But I think it seems safe to conclude that the books contain the works that people have done. I mean, look at the end of verse 12. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then you see it again at the end of verse 13. And the dead were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So it seems the books contain a record of their deeds. Final judgment is according to works, and that is throughout the Bible. The idea isn't that God looks at their evil deeds and then he weighs them against their good deeds and you know if they have more evil than good well then they just didn't make the cut it's not the way it goes rather the works are standing as a witness to their identity the works stand as the external evidence to what was true within the quality of the works Point to the true state of the heart. So if you glance over at chapter 21, verse 8, you get a sense for the types of deeds characterizing their lives. Chapter 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. So those are some of the deeds that are written there. Cowardiceness, right? Faithlessness, idolatry, and so forth. And, and to this, we could add other deeds like, uh, like that are mentioned in Revelation, like imprisoning the innocent, chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, Pretending like you have no need of Jesus, chapter 3, verse 17. 
trusting in the works of your hands over God. Chapter 9, verse 20. Worshiping the beast and his kingdom. Chapter 13, verse 4. Blaspheming God's name. Chapter 13, verse 6. Locking arm with the world system of evil. Chapter 17, verse 2. These works are proof that their allegiance was not to the lamb, but to the beast. Their heart did not belong to Christ, it belonged to their idols. Further evidence then comes with the book of life. It too is opened in verse 12. The book of life belongs to the lamb who was slain. We learn that in chapter 13, verse 8. It contains the names of the lamb's followers, and God wrote their names in the book before the foundation of the world. Their names are present, in other words, not because of their works, but because of grace. And so for this reason, for this staggering amazement that their name is in the book of life by grace, they refuse to worship the beast. They love the lamb. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's the picture John paints in Revelation. And for these who endure, Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Chapter 3, verse 5. They will enjoy the life of the new Jerusalem. Chapter 21, verse 27. But notice uh, those not written in the book of life, they worship the beast. That's chapter 13, verse 8. Those not in the book of life refuse to repent and glorify God. That's chapter 9 and 16. They are guilty. And thus, when, when you look at these two books together... Either you are undeservingly saved or you deservingly perish. When you look at the books, you are either undeservingly saved, your name is in the book of life, or you deservingly perish. The books next to the book of life make the case abundantly clear for the dead. Which brings us to the verdict. The verdict First is the verdict for death in Hades, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire appeared twice before. Uh, the lamb throws the beast and the false prophet into, into the lake of fire, chapter 19, verse 20. And then later he throws Satan in there, chapter 20, verse 10. And the lake of fire symbolizes the horrors of final punishment. Now, some will, will want to you know, liken it to the river of fire that you see in Daniel chapter 7. And, and there, too, he, he, the Lord slays a beast and burns him. Uh, that, that's in Daniel 7, 9. Some of your translations have a stream of fire. So some will say, well, maybe John's drawing from that, that imagery of watery fire, right? Uh, it's also possible to compare John's lake of fire with the Gehenna of fire in Jesus' teaching. Uh, our Bibles often translate Gehenna with the word hell. Okay, so usually Jesus, when he's teaching on hell, it's this idea of Gehenna, and it refers to this unclean valley outside of Jerusalem where the, they burn trash all day. And so Jesus is borrowing that image to symbolize something of what final punishment is like, like this ongoing fire that never goes out. So whether those stand in the background though or not, we can say that John's lake of fire symbolizes a punishment of irreversible ruin. 
Okay, that's, that's why we're told uh, in chapter 19, verse 20, that it burns with sulfur. He, he's recalling language from what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when he rained on them sulfur and fire, it, was, it left Sodom and It was an irreversible ruin. We also learn that it's a place of torment in chapter 20, verse 10. The devil, the beast, and the false prophet experience torment forever and ever. What's surprising here, though, is that, is that John sees death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. And he equates the lake of fire with the, the second death. And so it's like this first pair, death and Hades, are getting a second pair, a second death, a lake of fire. So death gets a second death. Hades, which is already known for its fiery torments, gets a worse fire. And in, a, in the Greek world, like in the Greek mind, to the people hearing this, that is a surprising twist. Because this pair, in all of their literature, death and Hades, were known as the powers. They're going to take you down. Nobody can beat them. Death threatened everybody. But here, death and Hades will no longer be able to threaten humanity anymore. God ends them right here. There's no place for them in the new heaven and the new earth. As he will say... In chapter 21, verse 4, death shall be no more. And so these deadly forces of the underworld will no longer threaten God's people in the new Jerusalem. The second verdict comes for those without Christ. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so again, the scene is, you know, God opens the books. The spotlight of his purity is all-consuming. It exposes them. There's no escape. The people's deeds speak for themselves. They are guilty, and he casts the wicked into the lake of fire. They will not know the peace of the new Jerusalem. They will experience the same punishments as the ones that, as the ones that they chose to worship. Remember, that's the picture throughout Revelation is that they, they chose to worship the beast. They chose to worship the false prophet. They chose to worship Satan and all of their, the things that they were doing in their kingdom. And God is giving them what they want, what they wanted to worship. There you go. And now you get the same fate as the ones you worshiped. You get irreversible ruin and torment forever. Now, how should this vision affect us? Well, first, it should motivate, it should motivate us to repentance should motivate us to repentance. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you should consider it a mercy from God that you heard this prophecy today. In his love, God has warned you of final judgment. He will hold you accountable for all of your deeds. The world will tell you everything's just going to keep continuing as it is always, you know. It's it's never going to change. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Jesus is taking the world to judgment. So now is the time for repentance. So turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. 
But this message of repentance is also for Christians. Especially Christians that are, who are living in ways that are out of step with their identity. Right? This is, this is what, what happened in, in chapter 2, verse 22, with, with uh, the church in Thyatira. Jesus commanded the church in Thyatira to repent from tolerating Jezebel's idolatry. And if not, he says this, he promised to strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. He's telling that to Christians. So Jesus will hold us accountable for our works. Can you imagine hearing that rebuke earlier in the letter as you're listening to the the pastor, read this letter to your church. Can you imagine hearing that rebuke and then hearing about the great white throne judgment and hearing about God judge, judging the dead according to their works? That'll sober you up in a hurry. That will make you take false teaching more seriously. That will make you take sexual immorality and your, and, 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 and your idolatry more seriously and all the other sins you see Oh, these have eternal consequences. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Paul says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. So no matter who you are, final judgment means we're all going to be held accountable. And so wherever necessary, repent and devote yourself more carefully to Jesus' words and teachings. And help each other walk out this repentance, right? Confess your sins to one another. Point each other to the scriptures and help help each other walk out repentance. Second, don't be intimidated by the world's wrath. Don't be intimidated by the world's wrath. God's is greater. In Revelation, the the picture is that the world has its own wrath. Right, The devil, in verse 12, is cast out of heaven and he comes down and his wrath is great because he knows his time is short. And then how exactly do you see the devil's wrath playing out? Right? When you read Revelation, well... He's standing behind the authorities who are chunking chunking Christians into prison. That's one way his wrath is being manifest. He spreads lies through false teaching. He leads people to despise Christians. Others he leads to imprison them. Satan uses political power economic corruption, and religious deception in chapter 13 to create a culture that makes obedience to Jesus difficult. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 13, he makes it impossible for the Christian to buy and sell unless they conform to the beast and you worship his image. And once you conform, the world leaves you alone. But as soon as you stand with Jesus morally, as soon as you favor his word over their passions, oh, there is wrath to pay from the world. 
And I think you're watching this play out on day to day. Right? It comes like things like you conform to our sexual revolution or you will no longer have a job. You won't work here if you don't fly the flag at your desk during June. Right? Your insurance policy, it must provide free access to the week after pill or we're going to take you to court. Support abortion or we will destroy your pregnancy center. Right? Brothers and sisters in China, Iran, Pakistan, they experience the world's wrath. Just baptize somebody and find out. Translate the Bible for other people and the government ransacks your apartment. The world has wrath against Christians. All kinds of wrath stored up against Christians. And Satan stands behind it, is the picture that Revelation paints. But here's how final judgment helps us. It reminds us that if we choose to escape the dragon's wrath by conformity to his ways, if we choose to escape the world's wrath by compromise, then we will get an eternity of God's wrath. But if we fear God more than the world, if we endure the 80 years of hardships that come in the path of obedience we will gain an eternity of life in God's presence. So this is kind of John's way of saying what Jesus taught all along. Don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. So don't compromise to avoid the world's wrath. He who sits on the throne is far greater. And in the end... Only his throne will remain. At the same time, find relief. Find relief that complete justice will come. I was doing some reading this week on, uh, on the moral argument for God's existence. If objective moral values exist, then God must exist. Objective moral values exist... Therefore, God exists. Of course, some will question that objective moral values exist, right? But as C.S. Lewis explains in Mere Christianity, they soon contradict themselves. Just take their seat on the airplane, right? Shove in front of them at the Starbucks. Take a bite of their hamburger. You'll soon be getting an earful. You see, innate to human nature is a sense of right and wrong. And this law of human nature ultimately points to a lawgiver. That's the idea of the moral argument for God's existence. But related to this innate sense of right and wrong in humanity is this longing that we have for justice. And not merely justice on an earthly level, but justice at a supernatural level. As one apologist put it, we know that some acts are so desperately wicked that they demand a punishment greater than what earth has to offer. There are a class of human experiences in which our sense of what is humanly permissible is so fundamentally outraged that the only adequate response to the offense as well as to the offender seems to be a curse of supernatural dimensions. 
I've read news articles just this week that leave you with this sick feeling in your gut. Like, no earthly court is going to deal out a punishment that's deserved here. No earthly system will fulfill justice for those men who have harmed her. I mean, you can think of the Holocaust, Jim Crow, the Rwandan genocide, the terrorist attacks on 9-11. No human court will be able to hold everyone accountable. And even where they try, justice is not satisfied. God's court will. His books miss no injustice. His sentence will be perfect. His punishment will be full. We will have our final sigh of relief when all evil is accounted for and judged fully and put away forever. And we need to be able to rest in that, beloved. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, leave room for the wrath of God. God says, vengeance is mine. Finally, we need to warn and welcome others in Christ. We need to warn and welcome others in Christ. If God will hold the world accountable and we have the only hope of escape in the free offer of grace in Jesus Christ, then the most loving thing we can do is warn others and welcome them in Christ. If final judgment is real, then we must live like it's real, right? As John Piper once put it, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. I've been in Romans lately, and I've, I've been, uh, just struck once again by Paul's ongoing concern for the lost. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Chapter 9, verse 1. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is his concern for his kinsmen who are cut off from Christ. Chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Romans 11, 14. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow, somehow, right, to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Right? Do you have have that somehow in your life? Somehow. I've got to get the message to them that they may be saved. There's a man here in Paul who who felt the weight of final judgment. He walked around with it. He knew what was coming for the world. You know what else he knew? He knew what it meant to be delivered from it. He knew what it meant to be saved from the wrath to come. And this compelled him to share with others about the message of Jesus Christ. And so let's warn others and then welcome them in Christ, right? How awesome is it that we're, we, don't, we don't just have to leave people with warnings. We also get to follow it with the promise of eternal life in Jesus. 
We get to welcome others to life in the new Jerusalem by sharing the gospel of Jesus. John here sees the dead standing before the Lord's great white throne. But given their guilt, they don't stand for long. The Lord sentences them to eternal punishment. And the cry of the wicked in chapter 6, verse 17, becomes manifested. Who can stand? No one. At the same time, we can't forget another group before God's throne. In chapter 7, verse 9, we find a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and language. And what are they doing? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. But these are not sentenced to the lake of fire. They keep standing. They keep standing forever. And they sing and they serve in God's presence. Why? Chapter 7, verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's your welcome. All of us, like the wicked in this picture, have a record of debt as well. Praise God, he has nailed it to the cross and canceled it, Colossians 2 says. We have have evil deeds and thoughts and desires that would condemn us to the lake of fire, but in his gracious, loving plan to punish his son in our place, God wrote our names in the book of life. So by Jesus' blood, your guilt is removed. By Jesus' righteousness, your deeds are covered. By Jesus' work, you will stand and enjoy life with God. And the same is true for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And that's the message, that's the good news that we have to bring to the world. We get to share this with others. So warn them and then welcome them through the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have heard this word and that you have brought these words to our ears before the judgment. We are thankful for your mercies. They are so abundant. You lavish your kindness upon us in Christ. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, and that we can approach your throne boldly and with confidence. Please help us walk out repentance together as we await that final judgment day. And until then, make us faithful in our efforts to win others to the Lord. And please, cause many knees to bow to Jesus as a result. In his name we pray. Amen.